0: You're listening to The Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to The Elevate Podcast. This is another edition of Weekend Conversations. Each week, I take a deeper dive into an article or interview that I shared during the week, often a Friday forward. And joining me to do this is Mick, co-producer of the Elevate Podcast. How's it going, Mick? All good. How are you? I'm good. Ready, ready for the second to last weekend conversation of the year.
1: Yeah. Happy holidays to all who listen.
0: Yes, and I uh, hope everyone hope everyone enjoys the week ahead, which should start quieting down uh, probably as a Monday. So. All right. This week, we're going to be talking about uh, last week's Friday forward, which is called see it.
1: Yeah. So basically, this is the story of an incident that happened at the Air Force Academy and how the former superintendent, uh, a man named Lieutenant General Jay Silveria, responded to the incident. So can you tell a little bit of his story and what inspired you about it to write this post?
0: Sure. And and this is under the backdrop of I, I've written a lot and talked about the last couple of weeks around sort of my uh, shock at the shock, I guess, <laughs> at the leadership at some of our uh, larger uh, educational institutions and and both what we've seen in the quality of leadership and then people at the schools kind of saying hey leave us alone like this is a an inside issue when these people are paid a lot of money to lead global organizations so um, we've seen a lot of poor leadership poor responses this is what i really meant to say I'm on second thought or writing here's what i really meant to say and then i saw someone share this video on linkedin and Basically, I think what had happened in this case at the Air Force Academy is um, a black cadet uh, had discovered there was writing with racial undertones put outside the room of uh, five black cadets at the Air Force. And Jay Silvera was the lieutenant in charge of um, the academy, and I think within I don't know whether it was hour or days. Uh, I've tried to look and not clear, but basically uh, brought the entire 5,400 people up, all the instructors, leaders, everyone, and gave a pretty poignant impromptu speech in which he made under no clear, under no uncertain terms that this was not okay, was not going to happen uh, on his watch and was a red line for him. And it just, the clarity (laughs) by which he communicated around this issue, the sort of moral clarity the expedience the no hedging just everything about this this video i just felt like was the opposite of what we've seen and it occurred to me that we talk a lot about leadership but i i wonder if the expectations of of students and professors and the people on the campuses who who are not uh don't seem to be disappointed with the performance of the leaders they just haven't They don't know what good leadership looks like. They haven't kind of seen it. And to me, this was just a demonstration of what it looks like.
1: So I feel like this is a really good illustration of the more the soft skills, you could call them the intangible qualities required of leadership. And one of the points that you make in the piece is that there's a lot of leadership qualities that can be taught or trained, but to a certain degree, the most successful leaders have like the instinct that is required to meet the moment in a moment of crisis. What to you exemplifies the right instincts for meeting a moment of crisis?
0: Yeah, look, everyone's a genius at something. And we all are good at different things. And you know this. One of the things we do at Acceleration Partners in our interview process is we have some sort of assignment or real work thing or real world situation that emulates what the people are gonna do. And over the years, we've had people say, that wasn't enough time, I needed more instruction. And these are different exercises. But the exercises are almost exactly the work in the environment that the work happens. My answer is always like, this is the job. This is actually what you're gonna need to do. So if you're someone who doesn't like to respond quickly, if you don't like this or otherwise, this might not be for you. And again, one of the things that occurred to me from a lot of leaders across these campuses is just how their initial instinct has been so wrong. I mean, they've they've tried three press releases, you know, then they did a follow-up video to their bad video on Capitol Hill and then another one. And it's just like, whatever it is that you need, it's not natural to you if it takes you three or four tries every time. And look, leadership is contextual. Maybe academic leadership is different than organizational leadership. I, I think And look, we should not feel bad for any of these people. They're making millions of dollars a year. The last Penn uh, president retired, I think, $20 million in her her last year. So let's not pretend that these are humble, unpaid servants. I think our expectations would be different maybe if they were volunteering for this job or otherwise. But these people are paid incredibly well. They oversee large, complex institutions with global constituencies, and they need to be able to... Give a speech and have moral clarity and write something. And, and more often than not, we don't all get it right the first time. But particularly, you know, and, and I'm closer to the pen situation over the last couple months between what's gone on after October 7th and with the arts festival that started a lot of the problems before that, it took McGill three times every time to, <laughs> to say the right thing. To me, you're just not in the in the right job if that's the case.
1: Yeah, and so I, I think that the situation that happened in Congress was a very like flashpoint example of this. I know that there's a lot of differing opinions on like the best way that the university presidents could have handled it. I actually think that what you're talking about though, it's so broadly applicable that we can even talk about it just outside of that specific example. Like you see this with elected political representatives on both sides of the aisle, like you see this with leaders of major companies, like CEOs who have had to resign in disgrace. I mean just I would ask anyone listening to this, like, picture a situation where like you saw someone giving a public statement and you thought, well, they're gonna have to apologize for this later. And then <laughs> yeah. on top of it, you see the apology video, and it's often like this really, really worse. Yeah. yeah. And and you it actually makes you feel worse because it seems like people often describe it as almost like a proof of life video when someone's kidnapped. And, <laughs> yeah. and so why do you think that so many people who make these types of statements struggle to own that mistake and truly be contrite
0: in these types of apology or walkback videos. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Well, these things come out of being in a mode of inauthenticity, right? Which means that you're not in your default natural state. So I don't know whether you're not emotionally tied to what you're doing, it's not your talent, it's not your skill. You know, I kept thinking through this um, and and I said it wrong, I was like, "What, what was it? I was like, there was a, I think it was a Dan Quill debate and then I remembered, it was actually Mike Dukakis. So Mike Dukakis is, this is 20-something years ago now, is basically like lost the election because of terrible debate performance. Um, and what happened was he was in favor, uh, he was not in favor of the death penalty. And in in the presidential debate, they said to him, so his wife was Kitty Dukakis. They said, so your wife, Kitty Dukakis, is viciously murdered. Are you still not in favor of the death penalty? And he went into, not unlike these university presidents, a technical reasoning of why he favored, Well, I'm sorry, why he did not favor the death penalty. And if if you're not watching this, it's going to be hard to understand. But basically, you know, what he didn't do was say, of course, if someone savagely murdered my wife, like I would want every form of justice on them ever. And I would be angry and I would, in the moment. But if we look at all the data, it doesn't help or other or whatever his position was. But he was just widely panned and is, oh, this guy is like, he didn't even respond. This guy talked about murdering his wife and he gave a, a technical answer. So again, I, in the context of, I, I think leaders are in touch with their emotion and it feels natural to them. I think a lot of people in politics or policy are trying to envision what This is the difference. What does this person want me to say versus what do I feel deep in my sort of being and values and heart that I need to say or I'm going to say? And I can imagine that dissonance of constantly trying to think, what does the audience want to hear versus this is just who I am and what I'm going to say and how I lead.
1: Yeah. And I I think that leading with that type of emotion, which is something that, as you highlighted in the post, is something that Lieutenant General Silveria did really well. I think that sometimes people, and I think that this can especially happen in academia, which is obviously very academic and kind of there's a lot of rigor and legalese and administrative language to deal with. But like sometimes, and especially if you're in an exceedingly public forum, like testifying in a televised congressional hearing that's gonna be seen by millions of people, you have to remember that like people relate to this type of stuff with their feelings more than their brains. And that doesn't mean that you have to dumb down what you're saying, but it means that you need to cut to the emotional heart of the issue and make it a hundred percent clear, like what people need to hear me say is this. And so can you talk a bit about how Silveria made that the focal point of the speech?
0: Yeah. Um, I think that he did what he did not do. He he did not come up there and and with a piece of paper and say, ladies and gentlemen, we had a serious, you know, incident today. And again, it wasn't a speech. It was just he just dove right into it. He said, if you haven't heard from this, this went on. It's not acceptable in any way shape or form and we're going to talk about it and we're going we're to deal on it what was interesting is he did so many things well first of all he made it again there was no searching for the manual or technical he almost went to a higher this is not who we are this is not our values and by the way this will not happen on my watch that's leadership this will not happen on my watch but then after that, he kind of appealed to common humanity. And he said, look, we we're having good discussions after Charlottesville. We had set up a whole thing. We were having discussions where I felt like we're making good progress on this. Like our diversity is our greatest asset and we need to talk about these things and we need to do this stuff in in different ways. So he also wasn't yelling at people and screaming at them or, or otherwise, but it just was the opposite of everything that we saw um, on Capitol Hill. And I think it was... A lot of that was instinct. A lot of that was clear, you know, moral compass. And a lot of that was just kind of black and white around the issue. But my favorite part of it was, again, not like, hey, you know, saying these things or writing these things or threatening people is not okay under code section 4.204. He was like, this is not who we are. This is not our values. And at the end, he said, turn on your camera and video me. And he said now I'm probably gonna get this wrong, but he said, if this is what you wanna do or who you are, like, you're out. Like, if you disagree with this, like, you're out. And he had them literally, so I don't, you know, everyone talks about the bright red line and there's been a lot of in politics and when you paint the line, like, he didn't say it. He didn't have to say it. That's the other thing that was missing. It was very clear, and this is what's devoid in leadership these days, that, like, the consequences are very clear. You cross my red line and there will be consequences. One of the, the most disturbing things that the, the leader of, of MIT did, not during the session, was a week before that, and I think one of the reasons why she was called um, up, and MIT has been really bad around campus, was students were getting very aggressive, and they were blocking kids from going to class, and they were sort of harassing them. And the administration said, hey, if you keep doing this again, you're basically going to be suspended. They did it again the next day. They forced kids to like go around the back of a building to another class. And the university went to suspend them and found out a lot of them were here on student visas and they would lose their student visa. Um, so they made up a new special non-academic suspension. Like, no, this <laughs> is any parent would know this. You told students not to do it. Students who are in this country on a visa, we remember when the student... You know, went to Singapore years ago and broke all their laws. You know, what happened to them? They're here on a visa. They did exactly what you told them not to do. They broke it. Now there are consequences for that. And now you're saying, oh, well, the consequences have consequences. So I'm not going to implement that. That's terrible leadership. And what did the students do the next day? They stood up and chanted at a rally and said, see, we got the administration to back down. Like, all I can think of is like, again a parent as a parent like how poorly this would work if you were trying to establish boundaries for for your children
1: yeah and so i i think that mit taking that perspective and basically saying trying to set this line and then realizing that the consequences would be graver than they were willing to enforce i On an emotional level and on a human level, I understand why they pulled the brake rather than putting people's visas in jeopardy. But like that does make me question, did they think that through when they made the threat and drew the line in the first place? Like I think that you can't, as a leader, just say, well, I'll draw this line and I'll dangle these consequences and that will be enough to deter people. You have to think about whether (laughs) the consequence that you're connecting to the boundary, whether that's something that you feel like you can enforce. And if you feel like you can't, you'd better know that before things start happening. Otherwise, you're just going to look inconsistent. And you're going to look like you didn't put proper thought into it in the first place.
0: Yeah. A- anyone who's a parent who knows that if you did this with your kids, they would take full advantage <laughs> of the situation and and figure out how to manipulate those. But they, they know in a second when you say, I'm going to take away you know, something, why you don't do something that you're not going to do, and then you don't do it, and they go, oh, well, this is a, a false threat. But look, there's reasons why enforcement of boundaries have examples. People are made an example out of, because otherwise, people don't believe the boundary. But I promise you, the way that he said that with absolute clarity, no one was going near that boundary. And everyone understood the consequence of that boundary, and I understand it was the military, but there were no if ands, or buts. And we are, we are doing a huge disservice in leadership these days because we're removing, and this is parenting and leadership in other, words, we are removing the association of behavior and consequences. And consequences aren't always a bad thing, but people have to understand the organic relationship between I do X and Y happens. I don't do X and Y doesn't happen. And like that's something that people have to learn for themselves. And you, it's an organic process that we really don't want to interfere with.
1: Yeah and it's a little bit like I I know that you've talked about in the past getting clarity on your personal values and how those relate to your authentic leadership style. And I know that an example I've heard you give is that there have been circumstances where you've had to respond to like negative behavior from an employee before, you know, this was I think several several years ago. But you addressed it by kind of borrowing from what other people that you know had done in a similar situation and the consequence that was imposed on it didn't feel authentic to you. I think that this is actually really connected to that because you need to make sure that when you're drawing this line and when you're saying the consequences associated with that line, It has to be something that with your values and with your authentic style that you can really be certain that you can stand behind. Like I think that what happened in the MIT case that you just described is that they set this consequence and it wasn't a consequence that they were prepared to actually follow through on. And I understand that, but it just... It's not good for anyone. It undermines your credibility completely, yeah.
0: Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Yeah, and and, and I have heard a lot. The MIT campus is is pretty out of control and pretty uncomfortable for a lot of people. And and I've heard feedback from a lot of people uh, who are involved there. I heard someone talking recently who was a graduate student who went there for four years, never had a single problem, and then said as a graduate student now, it's Almost become untenable. So that is what happens when people see that there aren't aren't lines. I, look, I to be fair, there are some universities with no issues right now, no intimidation, no other. And I think those leaders ha- very early on just set the tone about what was acceptable and not acceptable. And and they either did it in one of two ways: they did it in the value way. This is who we are, and and who we're not, and we're just not going to be like this. Or they did it. You know, there's the carrot and the stick way. Um, And I think people have had success with different uh, sides. I mean, Ben Sasse is an example, University of Florida. I think he's just absolute clarity from the beginning around what they were going to tolerate, not tolerate, what free speech looked like, what intimidation looked like, and just set the rules and and tone for the campus. And he's been someone who's been communicating very clearly with full moral clarity about his position on this, that probably... And this is an interesting point. It probably exceeds or goes beyond any bylaw or rule of the campus to him saying, I am the leader of this institution, and this this is what I'm saying is gonna happen, and it's gonna happen. Absolutely. So leaders in
1: a lot of fields, and this is especially true in politics, but I think it's also it happens in academia, as we saw here. It's happened in business. I think. Actually, what Elon Musk has been doing with Twitter or X is a good example of this. A lot of times when there are challenges or when there's like even a crisis, they tend to close ranks and say, you're either with me or you're against me, and you, they appeal to people who are already on their side. And Silveria, as you highlighted, tried to appeal to common humanity and
0: bring people together.
1: Why do you think closing ranks versus appealing to commonality is so damaging?
0: yeah, look, I think the people closing ranks may not may not be clear that they're correct or have the right answer. So they kind of move into the loyalty test. So, you know, I think the people who are they're either sure that they have the right answer, or look, in a lot of these situations, people could also start, this is confusing. I probably don't have the right answer. I probably have to make mistakes, but I'm listening to people. And so then they're inviting people into the conversation and being uh, part of the the solution. I think what we're seeing a little bit too, and this isn't a direct correlation, but I think it's related. Generally, the cover-up is more of a problem than the, the crime, right? And, and almost always in a case. I think this is the same thing too, where the the, the communication and the follow-up and whatever is is worse than whatever the incident is. And, and I think people are either making the situation much worse based on uh, how they're handling it or or better that's irrespective of what actually happened. Um, so I think if people thought about it that way, again, am I going to do things to make it worse? So if you're doing the close ranks, you're with me or against me, you're, you're, you know, kind of really putting all your eggs in, in one basket. I mean, the approach that, that we haven't seen in another way that would have been different, it would have been similar, but different. If you think back to the Capitol Hill, it would have been more of an empathy thing. Like, look, this is a mess. (laughs) This is new territory for all of us. And while we want to hold free speech, these types of things are not who we are at all. And and we've actually gotten ourselves in the mess and we need to figure out how to get ourselves out of it because our policies aren't consistent. You know, even something like that would have probably been, you know, a better path. But I, I think that, I think fundamentally people close ranks when they feel like um, the answer is they might not have the right answer, but if they just exert enough power, it will make the situation better.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that that extends to just making no admission of wrongdoing at all and relying on people who are on your side to back you up no matter what. Like it's, it, it is amazing how uncommon it has been to, for people to take accountability for when they've done something wrong, to admit when they gave a response that wasn't adequate. And I think in a lot of cases, it could really earn respect if more people were willing to say... We're still trying to figure out how to respond here. We're we're doing the best with the situation that we have. We've made mistakes, etc. There hasn't been enough of that, especially from an authentic
0: place. We we are an accountability-less society these days, or moving in this direction. So a couple of related examples to this. One, Liz McGill's resignation letter, she made no reference at all to anything that has gone on in the last few months, which just seems, well, why else are we resigning? So again, not authentic. This is a- academia, not authentic. Scott Bach, who was the chairman of the board who had supported her sort of unrelentlessly and then stepped down a few minutes after she stepped down, then basically released a letter saying that she had been wrongly vilified and had done her best and was just tired. So again, that just doesn't leave anyone <laughs> feeling really good. Similarly, on the flip side, here's another example, and I think this is why it's all over the place. There was a video that was shared. uh, A a young woman who lost her scholarship to NYU um, because she, or at least for a semester, because she had filled trash bags full of posters and thrown them out uh, that she tore down hostage posters, was kind of on looking for sympathy um, from people that the fact that she was being denied her education uh, as she said it and was kind of being unhoused and and a very victim oriented narrative when she lost her I mean she's on scholarship I don't know where she was here from but there are rules <laughs> around scholarships and behavior and again all of these things and and you know she was looking for sympathy in this video but in reading the thousands of comments people were like again they were kind of like well welcome to behavior and consequences we don't see hear you saying anything about, that was a mistake. You wish you didn't do it again or otherwise. So we seem we seem to be in this world where, again, we have the free speech. We have the right to act and do whatever we want. But when there is a negative consequence around that, then we just distance ourselves from that. So
1: sort of closing this out with back to the idea of leadership and leadership instincts. How can someone identify if a leader or a prospective leader has the necessary instincts like the ones that Silveria exemplified in that video?
0: Yeah, so that's a great question. If you were interviewing someone for something and you want to know whether they have instincts for the job, you should try to create scenario or scenarios that would mimic the job. So right now, if I was on the search committee for, for Penn and I was interviewing people. And I would, I would make up a crisis and I would give them five minutes to respond to it and to give a speech to the board or the hiring committee or ever, or their opinion on it or otherwise. Because I think what we're seeing is, or I'd ask them for a written sample on their opinion of something and give them a certain amount of time. I'm not saying that's the crisis piece, but I think we need to design interview processes that reflect the actual work that needs to be done and how it's going to be done it. So I know a lot of places that hire around newsrooms or otherwise, they use high pressure timed writing assignments to do. And this was before ChatGPT. I don't know how that has changed it. But that's the environment. Like how fast can you come up with something uh, poignant in 30 minutes and not have it be a grammatical mess or otherwise? That Because that is the actual job. So if you're interviewing someone, you should do something. So I, I think that people need to Look, first, past behavior is always the best indicator of future behavior. We've had Jeff Smart on. We talked about interviewing. Ask hypothetical questions. Get hypothetical answers. You want to talk to people about the situations they've been in, how they reacted, what they did. And then ideally, if possible, you'd want to put them in a couple of those situations in in your interviewing process.
1: Yeah. And to your point that you made earlier about the high-profile leadership roles that the leaders of these institutions have... If this sounds like a lot to ask in an interview process, these are really hard and really important jobs, you know, as as you've talked about a lot, leadership's hard. It's not it's not something that is just for anybody.
0: Yeah. And and so you gotta <laughs> it's hard. And if you get paid well to do the job, then people are expecting you to to do a good job at it. So the quote of the
1: week is from Martin Luther King Jr., and it's the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. Why does that resonate with you?
0: Yeah, look, I have been through, by the nature of my career and when it started, I have been through boom, bust, boom, bust, boom, bust. I haven't even seen a garden variety recession. I had like the internet boom, then the financial collapse, then covid and then all the stuff after. And if there's one thing I've seen consistently over time, there were people who I thought were pretty decent leaders in good times. And then you apply a little bit of pressure and they completely collapse and or you see the real person. So it's really easy to be a good leader when everything is is going well. I think that's just a horrible indicator of of leadership because it's just the the bar is so low. I, I really do think you, we see our great leaders when when it's hard, when it's difficult, when it's uh, challenging, when it's controversial, as Dr. King said. Um, because again, when it's easy and when no one's upset and everyone's at your back, like it's the bar is low. So I think he was right. And I think we have a lot of leaders that have failed that test pretty badly over the last couple of months.
1: It's a really good point. Pressure is the ultimate proving ground.
0: So do you want to take us out? sure so thanks for tuning in everyone to our latest edition of weekend conversations if you want to check out the friday four that we discussed today go to robertglazer.substack.com and look for the post titled see it keep your eye out for future edition of weekend conversations they will be in your feed every saturday morning including our end of year wrap up next week and if you haven't subscribed to the show follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast app until next time Keep elevator.
2: This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media